Welcome to We Need to Talk About Tech, where we talk about the past, present, and future of technology. Hello, everyone in podcast land. Welcome to this week's episode. On this week's episode of the podcast, we talk about the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. We're talking about the Last of Us finale. We talk about some more leaks of Pixel phones. And we're talking about more AI news. All right. Uh, so over the past couple of weeks, we've had some pretty troubling news of some big banks failing in the United States. Most recently, we had Signature Bank in New York. But the big news is the Silicon Valley Bank uh, has collapsed and pretty much shut down. It's now under government uh, control as they work out how to pay back customers for the uh, you know the money that they had invested in the bank. Chances are all the customers will not get uh, all their money back because what happened is it seemed like Silicon Valley Bank was running out of money. And this is interesting because it seems like this bank in particular is very popular with tech startups, hence Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley is is a, a tech startup haven. And this was one of the bigger banks in the United States and if one of, if not the biggest bank for uh, Silicon Valley and their startups in terms of where these companies would store their capital, where they would store a lot of the money from their investors, and where they would pay a lot of their employees from. So the fact that this bank uh, is on the verge of collapse and bankruptcy is definitely very scary for not just a lot of the companies that operate in Silicon Valley, but also a lot of the employees who may have their funds tied up in this bank. Now, this is interesting. There isn't really a ton of details as to why this whole collapse is happening. Uh, I think there there is a lot of conversation, especially regarding a lot of the layoffs that have been happening in the tech industry lately, that maybe this could be a sign that, you know, stock prices and, and uh, investments that this bank made with uh, their capital maybe work on awry. Uh, one thing that I find pretty interesting is I was listening to a podcast, the Bill Simmons podcast uh, a few weeks ago or, or this past week, and they brought up something really interesting. And this was prior to this bank collapse, but they brought up the the crypto collapse and specifically the collapse with FTX, which we talked about in the pad- podcast in the past. And one interesting thing that they brought up is with FTX and Bankman Freed, a lot of traditional investors, traditional banks who were not, not just banks, but investors in general, who were not generally interested in crypto and NFT-based investments, they felt that uh, Bankman Freed was kind of uh, an outlier in that, someone that they could trust. And it seems like the FTX got a lot of investment from traditional investors for uh, their portfolio and what they were planning on doing with crypto in general. And we all know how that turned out. FTX collapsed. It turned out to be quite a big scam, as, as it seems. And it seems like they were not managing funds that were being invested well at all. There was a lot of money put into companies, shell companies, and, and certain other companies and investments that never really paid off. Uh, and I wonder if that could have had a huge impact on some of these banks. One other point that they brought up that I think is interesting, and I'd love to get your opinion on, is they compared, because uh, generally the Bill Simmons podcast is generally a sports co- podcast, and where I think this kind of lines up is they compared the ads in the Super Bowl from one year prior to this year, and the difference between crypto ads one year prior to crypto ads this year, and the fact that there were none this year. And this is kind of really interesting because we've also seen things like the Staples Center is now the Crypto.com arena. 
Um, we've seen so much, and we've talked about this on the podcast, we saw so much proliferation over the last year of crypto kind of becoming a big, uh, you know, investment and uh, investment opportunity for a lot of traditional kind of investment styles. And that has pretty much, I don't want to say collapsed, but it's definitely took a huge hit uh, in the past year. And a lot of those companies like FTX don't exist or on the verge of, I don't want to say failing, but there's definitely a, a less than positive outlook on a lot of these companies. Uh, so I, I don't know if this could have had an issue or, or could have been the result of why there was such a, a abrupt failure of the Silicon Valley Bank. I don't know if this was also uh, the reasoning behind Signature Bank failing this past week as well. But, you know, it's kind of impossible to tell why exactly this happened. Maybe we'll get a, a full on report. But if it was related to crypto, do you think that this is just another sign that potentially these industries need to be higher regulated? Or do you think that potentially there's just a bigger issue overall in terms of the tech industry, especially in California, kind of struggling in the past few years since, you know, there's been so many layoffs and stock prices have kind of tumbled in the past year or so? I I'm uh, I kind of want to say that it means crypto needs to be more regulated, but like that's kind of the whole purpose of crypto and cryptocurrencies, right? It's, it's not supposed to be something that's centralized and regulated and, and governed over, right? So maybe just means that, hey, yes, crypto is exciting and cryptocurrencies are exciting, but when it comes to banking and it, when, when it comes to investing, companies shouldn't invest through crypto or rely on crypto, right? Maybe that's where, especially when you're talking about these huge corporations that have payrolls and have employees and, you know, have hundreds or even thousands of family members counting on them to be profitable. Maybe you can't risk any of that in crypto, right? For just everyday, just regular people, every everyday stuff. Yeah. Okay. You know, if John wants to have some of his assets tied up in crypto, sure. But for, you know, these fortune 500 companies to be heavily invested in crypto and you know i'm sure it's all a percentage of their of their total right but it's like maybe crypto should just be for the the common people mm. and it should be left out of corporations and then that way yeah you can keep it unregulated or very lightly regulated and then we don't have companies collapsing and banks collapsing because they have that much tied up in crypto and you know as far as silicon valley bank like i think it's the second biggest bank collapse in U.S. history in just 48 hours. So I think this all happened like around last week, right? It was essentially a week when this bank collapsed and it was essentially a bank run, right? So it's Silicon Valley Bank. It's a regional bank. It's not like, not the North American tech bank. It's just for people in the Silicon Valley where you have venture capitalists and you have startups and that's sort of their main clientele. And I think because... They were so focused on, you know, startups and venture capitalists and working with those people. Yeah, it's very niche and you have a lot of market saturation, right? Where it's like you essentially have all of the, not all of the money in Silicon Valley, but like you have a, a good portion of the money in startups in from VCs, from those sort of firms, you're handling that. And you have an advantage over, let's say, TD Bank, or let's say you have an advantage over HSBC because you're in Silicon Valley with those people. But then when all those people need their money because 
you're so niche down and you're only in that community. You know, you're not working all over North America or even just all over the United States when all those people start needing money and you don't have enough to cover everyone making their calls. It's that's kind of or that's exactly why they ran into a problem. Mm-hmm. Right. When you have when you have everyone in Silicon Valley that says, hey, OK, we need to start withdrawing our funds to to pay our employees. And then word gets out that, hey, Silicon Valley Bank doesn't necessarily have all of the money that they're supposed to have, or they've, you know, they were investing some of the money and they've made losses of, I think I saw 2.25 billion. Then as that word sprinkles around Silicon Valley and, you know, makes its way around, people start getting worried and say, well, hey, they've lost 2.25 billion. I'm not sure if they're going to have my money a week from now. Let me take my money out now. And everyone starts doing that. I mean, when you're a big bank that is nationally syndicated or that works over the nation, you have a lot more money to handle and a lot more money to move around. So if California, let's say if people, a lot of people in California want their money, well, yeah, that's okay because maybe Texas people for whatever reason aren't taking out as much of their money, or maybe people in New York aren't taking out as much of their money. But when all of your money is tied up in this one region, which is a very lucrative region, but when it's all tied up here, and then for whatever point in the industry, whatever time of year in the industry, everyone starts saying, hey, we need to start making withdrawals or we need to start you know, reorganizing our payroll. That's kind of the consequence of being so niche down to this one region, right? And especially as people in the region start talking, it's like, hey, you might want to take your money out because who knows if this company is going to be around next week, right? That's why you have such a huge bank run. And especially when it's such huge numbers that we're talking about, right? We're not talking about mom and pop shops that need to withdraw money, or we're not talking about, you know, this deli down the street or this mechanic down the street. These are billion dollar companies that are all wanting to withdraw their money at the same time. So, I mean, it's, you live by the sword, you die by the sword, right? If you're living because yeah, hey, all these billion dollar startups are, you know, storing their money with us or doing their payroll through us or getting funded through us. Well, then you have to be ready to pay out those billion dollar startups when they need their money back. So I guess in a roundabout way, crypto should be separate and niching down is good to an extent, but then it also comes with consequences. Yeah. And, and uh, to be clear, I, I, I don't want to make it seem like crypto is the reason why Silicon Valley Bank failed. It's just an interesting analog between the two uh, kind of downturns. As a matter of fact, it do- does seem like potentially... Uh, well, we know the reason why Silicon Valley Bank, at least it seems like they failed, is because of poor in- investment strategy. Uh, it-, it seems like this has been something that's been years in the making. And I think what, like you mentioned, it was a bank run. I think they announced that they had sold a bunch of investments at a loss and then people got scared. Uh, and, you know, stock price started to tank that people were just like, OK, we need to get our money out of this bank because um, something is not right here. And yeah, at that point, they just realized that they didn't have enough money to pay out all their customers, or at least the customers who were coming to take their money out of the bank, which led to their collapse and led for to the government taking over the bank. Whether this is a, a similar issue to Signature Bank in New York uh, remains to be seen. But like you said, yes, this is the second largest since the uh, financial crisis of 2008, when a bunch of the biggest banks failed. Uh, Silicon Valley Bank is the 16th largest uh, bank in America. So this is not up to the level of the gigantic banks that failed in 2008, but is still a very big 
uh, collapse to begin with and could potentially be the start now that we've seen a second bank of maybe this could be more of a common thing. Hopefully not. Hopefully this is where it ends. But yeah, it's just an interesting kind of collapse between this bank, Signature Bank, what's been happening with crypto, but also what's been happening with the markets altogether. Because like I said, this this isn't generally something to be pinned on crypto or just the 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 tech sector and, and Silicon Valley to begin with. There's clearly a bigger issue with how some of these banks have been investing. Um, and that's got to be when this is the time when they have to be the most, uh, I guess, prudent on how they're investing because there's so much uncertainty in, in the market altogether. And just what's happening with crypto and what's happening with, with tech stocks in general, I think it's just an example of what that could mean if, if banks or, or any company starts putting their investments in the wrong place. Uh, but yeah, this is the, this is an interesting one. Um, hopefully, you know, it, it gets resolved. Uh, you know, all these situations can kind of come together where people actually do get their money back because obviously we don't want to see these banks failing and then people just lose out on all their money for no reason or because yeah. a couple of people made really bad decisions. Yeah, definitely. All right, on to topic number two. So last week we talked a bit about The Last of Us. It was right before the finale, season one. I'd say it's pretty spoiler-free, right? Yeah. Also, this is going to be pretty spoiler-free too. I don't want to talk about anything that actually happened in the episode. Maybe we'll save that for after the podcast. But just some of the numbers, the finale had 8.2 million viewers the night of the finale, which is, I think their previous record for an episode was like 7 million. So they broke their own record, which was great. The first six episodes of the season are averaging 30.4 million viewers per episode. Episode one is getting close to 40 million views if it's not at it already. Season one, huge success, right? I think even after the second episode, it was already renewed for a second season, which is, I mean, two episodes into a, a show is pretty big deal, I would say. Spoiler alert first. Now, I think in the last episode, I had said that they were planning to split up the games into two seasons each. So I didn't think that they were going to end the first season with the first game. So I guess that's a bit of a spoiler, but I didn't think they were going to end the first season with the first game they did i i mean great ending as it was in the game but it's for the second game they're gonna split up into multiple seasons so i'm not sure how many seasons they're planning to split it up for i would assume two but they've been renewed for a second season i would assume that if it does as well as this first season they would be renewed for a third season i think it was phenomenally done i think you know last week as we were talking about it I was very impressed with the season up until the finale. I was very impressed with the finale when it happened too. I talked with a few people who weren't familiar with the story, who'd never played the games, never watched any play-alongs. So I, I mean, I was expecting for them to be surprised by the finale. It's a great finale. And I, you know, I got some joy out of talking with them. Be like, man, I can't believe that happened. I didn't see that coming again. Like completely blew my mind, which Playing the game, you know, when it happened, I was like, my mind was blown too, right? Yeah. So the fact that, and I think I said this last episode, I think we said this last episode, the fact that this is a great story and now it's not just limited to people who like playing video games or who like playing, you know, suspense or thriller video games. Now everyone is exposed to this great story. I, you know, I'm very appreciative of that because before this show came out, it was, man, The Last of Us is a great story. 
I think you'd like the story, but you're not someone who likes playing video games or likes playing thriller video games. So you're not going to get to experience this. But the fact that they've made a TV show and now they've brought it out to more people, they've brought it out to the world. I mean, that's that's something that I I really like seeing. Something that's great to see, right? Good stories are good stories. Now, another mild spoiler. So if you don't, I mean, it's a little bit of a spoiler, but you get a flashback in the finale, like right at the start of it, and you get to see Ellie's mom. Mm. What's cool is the actor that played Ellie's mom is the same actor who played Ellie in the original game. Her name is Ashley Johnson. So it's a cool little Easter egg crossover that the person who played Ellie in the game is the one playing Ellie's mom in the show. I mean, she's a bit too grown to play Ellie. (laughs) But, you know, it, it kind of, it makes me think of the Mandalorian, right? Where you have Bo-Katan Kreese who comes in, who's a pretty big character in the Clone Wars TV show. But the person, the actor who plays Bo-Katan in the show is the same person who voiced Bo-Katan in the TV show, or sorry, in the animated Clone Wars show. So it's a nice little Easter egg for people who are fans of the games, fans of the series, which, you know, for someone just watching it, it's okay. You know, this person played Ellie's mom, great. But for people who play the game and who are familiar with the actor's work, it's like, oh, wow, this is incredible that you brought the same person that I'm familiar with into this live action adaptation, right? Which is, I think, a nice little touch to to fans or I guess a nice little homage to fans. But question to you, what have you seen around the finale? What kind of stuff have you heard? I'm assuming it was pretty, uh, you've heard positive stuff about the finale. But yeah, what are your thoughts on the, the first season of The Last of Us? Yeah, so from someone who hasn't watched it, um, and, and you know, I don't know if I if I will watch it at some point. But despite that, the conversation around the show has been fantastic. I, and here's the thing: I I kind of always figured it would be. Uh, I've I've said many times, uh, maybe off the podcast, and maybe even on the podcast, The Last of Us is a game I really don't enjoy playing, but the story is really really good. Um, it's it's one of those stories that not just for people who love video games, uh, but people who also don't love video games get attached to these characters. And uh, I think that's just goes to show just how good uh, Naughty Dog is at creating uh, characters that people really like. They did the same thing with Uncharted. People really love uh, characters like uh, Drake and and all the the characters that are in that game, Sully and stuff like that. Uh, But the difference is, the creators were involved from beginning to end in the creation of the show. Also, a lot of the creators that were involved in the creation of Uncharted aren't with Naughty Dog anymore. People like Amy Hennig. But, you know, Neil Druckmann, one of the figureheads of Naughty Dog and, and you know, creators of this game series, was involved in the creation of this show from beginning to end. Like you mentioned, Ashley Johnson, who is the voice of Ellie, was involved in the show. And they said from even before the show came out, Hey, she's going to be a character in the show. We're not going to tell you who, but she is. Also, Troy Baker, the voice of of Joel, was also in the show. Don't know who who he played. I haven't watched the show, but um, and that was always kept a secret. But just that idea of, hey, we know there's a lineage with these games. We know there's fans of these games. We're going to thread the needle of, hey, you know the game. Uh, you like your version of, of Joel and Ellie. We're going to show you that we like them too by bringing the people who played them into the show. 
um, and not just make it like a throwaway or, or an Easter egg. We're actually going to give them parts to play that are actually interesting and integral to the story. So yeah, I, I 100% think that they hit it out the park with this. And once again, not surprised. I always thought that they would, but also it's just great to see. And I'm as much as, as you know, I, I, I've, haven't watched the show yet. Um, I am really excited to see what happens, how they adapt The Last of Us Part Two, because that is very, very divisive. It's a game that I watched from beginning to end, for the most part, from beginning to end, and I absolutely thought was great. Uh, in some ways, I kind of even liked it more than the first one, which I know there's there's a small minority of people who feel that way, but uh, it's just an interesting kind of way to tell a story, and I don't know. It's, it's definitely going to be much more of a difficult adaptation than the first game. Uh, but I am very excited for it. And I think they said there it will be at least two seasons for the second game. I, I think the, the thought of it being two makes sense. Whether or not they go longer than that, we'll see. But then there's also going to be a new game that's coming out. It's supposed to come out this year, The Last of Us Factions, which is like an adaptation of the... If anyone remembers, in the first Last of Us game, there was a multiplayer mode that was based off of the multiplayer mode from the Uncharted games, uh, but just added a a few more features into it, kind of grounded it in the Last of Us universe. There's supposed to be a new multiplayer game in that same vein that is supposed to be very story-heavy. What that means, I don't know how you make a multiplayer game very story-heavy, but (laughs) you know, maybe that could be something where they adapt into the show as well, maybe extend out to to more seasons. But the one thing I, I, I think you brought up a good point here, this finale was fantastic, right? People really loved the finale, and it was true to the source material, at least from what it sounds like. You don't want a Game of Thrones situation where you have this really popular show, and you either try to shoehorn too much stuff into too little of episodes, which is a lot of the criticism I heard about the uh, last season of the Game of Thrones. Yep. And also, you don't want a bad finale that's not based off of source material, because that's another comp- complaint I heard about Game of Thrones. The source material wasn't there. That was just something that the creators made up as they went along. And you don't want to see The Last of Us go down that same path. And I think if they cap it at three seasons, hey, this is the core story. This is the story that we're going to tell. Great. End it there. Um, if you want to do something with The Last of Us later on at a later date, go ahead. If they ever make a third game, maybe you can adapt that. But yeah, from my point of view, as someone who hasn't watched the show and you know, likes the games, but isn't like the biggest, biggest fan. Like I'm not clamoring for more Last of Us stuff. I would say I would like them to play it more conservative and just like, okay, this is what we have. This is our end date. We're done with the show. Maybe we'll reevaluate it later. But I know you're a much bigger fan of The Last of Us than I am. Would you like to see them be a little bit more um, open with creating more stuff for The Last of Us? Maybe having more seasons that aren't based off of games? Um, Or are you afraid that that might go down the Game of Thrones path? I'm definitely afraid that might go down the Game of Thrones path. I, I, yeah, it's difficult. I would definitely like another Last of Us game, and not. I didn't. I wasn't aware of the mm-hmm. Factions game. To be honest, is the first time hearing of it. I would like another Last of Us game that follows the main characters. Mm-hmm. I don't want it to turn into something where it's like I don't know. I can't even think of like a game series right now. But there needs to be a clear end into it. Yeah, I don't want it to be open ended. Like the Indiana Jones movies, for instance, right? Where it's like, okay, Indy does this and Indy does that. And, you know, oh, Indy, you know, he disappears for a movie and now, you know, he's back again. And, oh, he's 60 years, 60 years old and he's still running around like a 20-year-old. Like, yeah. 
great movies, entertaining movies. I'm not mad that there's another Indiana Jones movie coming out. I'm definitely not mad about that. But this game or this story, I guess, really, because it's not just a game anymore. This is something very separate than that. This is like a distinct story driven experience that needs to have a conclusion because I'm sure they could keep on just churning out games and churning out stuff and you know people would still watch it I'd still watch it I'd still play it but this needs some sort of conclusion and it's I want the same people that started the process that started the story to finish the story and then once it's done that's it we don't need people piling on top and we don't need, oh, you know, people coming back when they're 70 years old and yeah, I still got another run in me. Like, no, give us an end to this story. I'm sure it's going to be a controversial end. I'm sure, you know, people are going to be upset. People are going to be angry. People are going to be crying. But <laughs> this should have a clear end to it, whether it's a third game, whether it's possibly a fourth game, like, but it needs an end. And I want the show to go on for that tell the story and then it's done right like if you look at other hbo shows especially let's say something like the sopranos right or something like the wire like i'm sure with how successful those shows were they could probably be in like their their 15th season by now right but it was no we have a story we have a start we have an end once we're done telling it it's done and then us as hbo we're gonna find another story to tell i think that's what this and i, I want to say show but it's i think that's what this show this game this story, I think that's what this deserves, right? So I hope they come out with a, another game. I hope they come out with shows that tell the story of the games. And then I hope they finish it. And they don't, you know, just keep on trying to stretch it out just because they know they can make more money. I just want them to, like, do it justice, right? Well, uh, on that note, I mean, I, I guess you already gave your answer to this question, but I'm, I'll ask you this. Can you think of any non-main character, non-Joel, non-Ellie um, character or group or faction that you would like to see explored in either a Last of Us game or kind of more interesting to me, a show. Like I would personally love to see uh, like a really, I don't know about if dark is the word, but kind of like exploratory kind of show on the scars, the Seraphites mm. um, and, and kind of just dig deep into that and be completely separate from what we know from Joel and Ellie and kind of build that up. I would love to see that be like, maybe even if they do two seasons of the last of us part two, there could be the first season, then that season on just going into, you know, the Seraphites and then the end, the conclusion of the last of us part two as the, as maybe a fourth season, if you were going to extend it, I don't think that's necessary, but that's just something I would personally like to see. Um, is there anything on that level for you that you would like to see? And then also, since this was such an exceptional kind of adaptation, I think a lot of people have faith in video game adaptations, which they should. There's been a lot of really good video game adaptations um, in the past. This might be the best, but is there any other game that you would love to see the same kind of, of love and care put into to bring to a TV show that maybe you can introduce to people who wouldn't play games, but would probably be interested by the world or the story? So I, as soon as you started saying that, I was thinking of, I mean, the two main factions, right? Fedra and the Fireflies. Mm. In the show, you get a little bit more, a little bit more behind the curtains look at how Fedra operates. I would really like to see the story of, and you could even do this from like the start of the outbreak. Spoiler alert: This is a show about 
an outbreak and apocalypse. Uh, but I would like to see, okay, how did Fedra, how was it founded? And then how did it grow and develop up until the story of The Last of Us, up to the story of Ellie and Joe? And then even the fireflies, okay, how did the fireflies get founded? Who were the first fireflies? Because I'm sure there'd be an amazing story arc about that. Mm -hmm. Right. But like, who were the first fireflies? And then same thing. How do they grow up into the story of the last of us? Right. The scars would be cool too. Like there's, there's so much in, in this that they could dive into. And it's clear from how they've done the show that there is still so much more story to tell. Like the episode with Bill and Frank in the game, they're just, they're mentioned, right. They're alluded to a bit, but they don't go in depth. And then you get, an entire episode going into the lives of these two. And it's like for someone who played the game and I'm sure for you, for someone who, or I guess, no, you never watched the episode. So you don't know, but as someone who played the game, that was something that was brand new to me. And that's what I think I mentioned. Like I was very pleased to see that there was still more story to tell. Right. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's like, they have all these stories to tell, but it doesn't necessarily fit into the game and the, you know, the flow of the game. So it's just, you know, stories that they have stored away somewhere. So I'm sure that, you know, when it comes to factions like the Scars, like Fedra, like the Fireflies, they probably have all of that stuff mapped out already. And it's just like, you know, we're not going to fit this into the game because it might take people out of the main story, but we have that source material. So I think personally, I'd be interested in, in those two factions. And I would love to see a, a show after maybe after they tell the entire story or maybe like you said maybe they do the second game then they go into the backstory of whatever factions and then they come out with another season but i'm sorry what was the second part to your question uh is there another property a video game that you would like to see adapted to this kind of level uh, i guess one thing i'd be interested in seeing is red dead redemption mm. but i've never played the games <laughs> mm. so you know sort of like you to the last of us I'm not really interested in playing it. I I know they're great games. I've heard they're great games. But from the pacing of the games, I just yeah. don't... <laughs> I'm not interested. Sounds like a great story. Sounds like a lot of fun. Maybe, yeah. you know, when I'm retired, maybe then when I have more time, I'll play the games. But uh, I think from what I've heard, great stories, great games. So I'd be interested to see in a live-action adaptation of that. Are there is there anything that you'd be interested in seeing in terms of a game turning into a, either a TV show or a movie? Well, I will say to your point about Red Dead, I think that's a, an awesome choice. I think very similar to uh, The Last of Us. Those are very story heavy games, and I think they would work really well as being translated. So, yeah, that, that I think that's a great choice. For me, there's definitely game worlds that I would love to see adapted. Not necessarily, I don't think the stories work well in a one-to-one -one being translated uh, into a TV show, but something like Mass Effect, for example. I, was I think that story... As soon as you said game worlds, is like, fuck, Mass Effect. Yeah, it's just one of those things where I don't think the, the actual story works as a TV show. But the world, I think, could be really, really fun and really, really cool, especially if you have the level of, of care and budgets and, but here's the thing though, a lot of the people who are involved in the creation of the last of us, sorry, in the creation of uh, mass effect at Bioware are no longer with the company. So there isn't that level of expertise um, in there. And also 
you know, Mass Effect is a little bit of a, it's heavily inspired by Star Trek. So it's it's not as new and as fun and as interesting as something like The Last of Us would be to a lot of people. Um, but then another one, we saw a kind of an adaptation of it would be Cyberpunk 2077. Uh, I think that world is fantastic. I think that world is really, really cool. And uh, I think you could do so much more with that. I think Edge Run- Runners was a great start. Uh, I, I still think you could do a lot more, but overall my winner, and I think they are working on the show. Don't know if I have as much faith in it as I do, did the last of us, but it would be fallout. Uh, I think fallout is just one of those things where it doesn't need to be the most expensive show, but it's kind of like, uh, very similar to the last of us in, in the realm that it's a pseudo kind of horror world. It's very, it's very easy to relate to what's going on in that world. Be similar how it's easy to relate what's going on in, the last of us despite the fact that it's a very different world um and i think it would be much easier for larger audience to digest unlike something like cyberpunk and and mass effect i think those are going to speak really well kind of like what halo tried to do but speak really well to a gaming audience i don't think it's really going to bring in people outside of gaming i think fallout could bring in people outside of gaming because it's just kind of like a a post-apocalyptic what does the world look like when there's a nuclear fallout kind of a situation and just how shady that world is? I feel like there's a lot of analogs to to The Last of Us in that kind of situation of like, yeah, you could tell really good, cool stories. But unlike The Last of Us, once again, I don't think you could translate those stories one to one because they're just not at that level. Yeah. Shout out to Cyberpunk. Yeah. Uh, Edge Runners, great show. I think I watched it maybe like at least three or four times. Oh, wow. Yeah, like, and the overall story isn't that long, right? I think it's, what, like, nine episodes? Yeah. Right? But, yeah, very enjoyable show. I still haven't played Cyberpunk, but it has me interested in Cyberpunk. And uh, on Netflix right now, I think it's gaining in popularity. The last time I logged into Netflix, it was saying that it's popular. I don't know if it's just popular in Canada right now or just popular in North America or globally, but for whatever reason, it's kind of popping back up. And, yeah, very good adaptation coming from someone who's not familiar with the story at all. Yeah. <laughs> all right. On to our next topic. We are talking about pixel leaks. So I feel like as this typical fashion with Android phones and especially Google stuff, we have leaks for their upcoming devices. So we have renders for the pixel eight and pixel eight pro starting off with the eight. It's the same, or I guess for both devices, it's the same general design. Big camera bar on the back, glass back and front. What's interesting, though, is that both devices have a bit of a smaller footprint. So the 8 and the 8 Pro, the 8 and the 8 Pro are overall thinner, narrower, and shorter than their Pixel 7 and 7 Pro counterparts. Now, the 8 has a flat screen, but it's supposed to have a 6.2-inch screen instead of a 6.3. So they're actually going down in size, which is, you know, we'll get your opinion on that later on. And then when it comes to the 8 Pro, same general design, camera bar on the back, uh, smaller also, you know, it's thinner, narrower, shorter, but it's supposed to still have the 6.7 inch screen still. So it's not shrinking down in screen size. It seems like, okay, they've established that 6.7 inch is a good size for a pro phone. The bezels seem to be a little bit smaller, thinner. Could just be from the renders that people are seeing. And it seems like they've ditched the curve or they've reduced the curve at least if it's not 
completely ditched, if it's not completely flat. It seems like they've repositioned the cameras a bit on the 8 Pro. Now, the 8, same camera arrangement as the 7. Uh, but the 8 Pro, they've shifted all the sensors to one side, and it seems like they've actually added another sensor underneath the flash. And we can have a link to some pictures and a, a video in case you're interested to see what the renders look like. But uh, people are speculating on what this new added sensor could be. Some people are saying it could be a depth sensor. Some people are saying it could be a LiDAR scanner because, you know, Google does a lot of stuff with augmented reality lenses and augmented reality. So there's a, there's an, I guess, interesting new sensor that we could be hearing about soon. It's probably going to be powered by the next Tensor chip, the G3. It shouldn't be coming out until late 2023. And also in the Pixel leaks, Google I.O. is supposed to be happening in May, so in a couple of months. And they're expected to show off the Pixel 7a, which is going to be coming out in June. And they're also supposed to show off the Pixel Fold. Now, there's been rumors for uh, almost seems like a decade at this point of a Pixel Fold eventually coming out. And now it seems like Google is actually ready to talk about the Pixel Fold. I think there was even, you know, a leak or a rumor that someone had one on a New York City subway. But the Pixel Fold is supposed to be announced. The Pixel 7a is supposed to be announced. And possibly the 8 and 8 Pro might get announced also. But, you know, what have you seen from these leaks, from these rumors? Have you seen these renders? Do you think we're going to get a Pixel Fold this year? Or is it still just people speculating? Uh, that's tough. I, I think there's a potential we get a Pixel Fold this year. Uh, it might be a situation where they kind of did with the Pixel Fold or the Pixel, sorry, the Pixel tablet last year where they showed it, but they're like, hey, this isn't coming anytime soon. We're going to bring it out next year sometime, but we just want to show you because we know this stuff leaks anyways. Maybe they do that with the Fold. Uh, Google I.O. is uh, May 10th, 2023. Um, so that's coming up in just a couple of months. Maybe that could be where they show off some of these devices, especially since if these leaks are are legit, which given the Pixel's history probably <laughs> is, um, it's probably a sign that they're ready to show these off sooner rather than later. Uh, if, if anyone remembers, they showed off the Pixel 7 far before they, they ever launched it. Um, you know, so they leaked it themselves, essentially. And I wouldn't be surprised if they do the same thing with the Pixel 8 here. Uh, to your question as it getting smaller, how do I feel about that? Specifically the non-pro version. Yeah, I like that. Uh, I, I've made a list a while ago of what my perfect smartphone would look like. And I think in the screen size, I put somewhere between 5.9 and 6.2 inches. So it's not quite there yet at 6.3, but still close. And uh, I'm I know much... it's 6.2. It oh, was 6.3. Now it's 6.2. Perfect. So yeah, going right into the the perfect kind of Goldilocks zone for me in terms of phone sizes, uh, which I, I think is awesome. I, I, I think iPhone did this perfectly. When they brought out their non-pro version and their non-max version of the phones, I think they hit that size out of the park. It's really nice. It's really compact. Mm -hmm. So I like the fact that Samsung and Google, well, Google's been doing smaller phones for a while now, but now it's like a flagship phone that is kind of getting into that, that more compact size, which I think is really, really cool. Uh, the Fold, though, I'm still not on, on board with folding phones. I don't know what it is. To me, they just seem so fragile and not durable and plastic screens. And I just don't, I don't get it. 
kind of. And we're going to talk about other things that I really don't get in, in a bit. But yeah, folding phones is just one of those things that I just don't get. But it could be kind of like what people talk about with VR of like, yeah, you get it once you have it in your hands and you're using it. Um, so yeah, the one thing I do want to ask you, though, about these leaks, and it's, this is just about phones in general, not necessarily specifically about the Pixel. But okay, they're going away from potentially going away from the curved the screen curving over the edges, which I think is fantastic. Uh, maybe slimmer bezels, maybe not. But how do you feel about phones with very small bezels? You have an iPhone, which I think they perfected the symmetrical bezel. They they did it so well. I'm curious, how do you feel about that? Do you like it? Does that aesthetic work for you? One thing I found myself noticing as someone who has a phone that doesn't have very large bezels, even though they are considerably larger than what the iPhone has, is that I get a lot of accidental touches. Um, and it's kind of frustrating. Like, I'll be watching a YouTube video and, you know, I'll accidentally hit, like, a button that puts me onto another video when I'm, like, rotating the phone. Like, the palm of my hand will hit the button, like, one of the suggested uh, videos at the bottom of the of the list. And then it will put me onto another video and then I've just lost all my progress that I've been watching before. And it kind of makes me wonder, do bezels need to come back? Like, do we need, uh, or I shouldn't say need, but am I crazy to think that I wouldn't mind a phone with bezels these days? I'm just curious to get your impression on on that. And then also, uh, you know, as someone who's used a Pixel uh, device in the past, how do you feel about these leaks? Do you think it's moving Pixel in the right direction? Do you think Fold is moving Pixel in the right direction? Or do you think maybe Pixel needs to do something different? I, I don't necessarily think bezels need to come back i think we just need to move away from curved screens mm. and that seems to be a trend that that's moving or there's that seems to be a trend in the phone industry right now and it, you know samsung is the one who started it right with their samsung edge and it was a cool uh design feature right yeah talking about the oh the waterfall edge on the side of the screen and you can have all your widgets on this side and they don't take up screen real estate but you know people realize pretty quickly it's like it looks cool and you know it's a cool technical feat but i keep on accidentally touching stuff yeah right i keep on activate accidentally activating apps and you know maybe touching on suggested videos like you said and slowly phones have been moving to flatter and flatter screens right because for quite some time it was okay the non-pro phones have flat screen and pros need, you know, for whatever reason, pros need curved edges on their screens <laughs> for whatever reason, pros want that. But I think, you know, one thing that's great about iPhones is that both their pro phones and their non-pro phones have flat screens. Cause I think they realize that like, it may look cool, but it's not functionally cool. And so they've never had a curved edge screen. So, I don't think bezels need to necessarily come back. I just think we should get rid of curved screens. I'm not sure how much your screen curves over your edge, um, but I wouldn't be opposed to bezels if we get some functionality out of it. Like we've talked, you know, many times before about the Sony Xperia One phone, right? Mm -hmm. Where it has a forehead and a chin bezel, but in that you have your camera sensors, so you don't have to have any cutouts on your screen. And you also have front firing speakers. So if we get bezels back and we get better speakers and we get more screen real estate back, 
great. I'd love that. But if it's not adding features like that, I don't I don't want to see bezels creeping back into phones. Mm-hmm. Do I think Pixel is moving in the right direction? I yeah, I do. Especially when you look at their main phones, right? When you look at the 8, the 8 Pro, and then I guess the 7A2. So when you look at the A series and then their regular phones, I think they're moving in the right direction. As, you know, same thing as you, I would say that the 6.1-inch screen size of the iPhones, I think they hit that out of the park. 6.2, I'm sure, wouldn't seem that much bigger. But also, I don't want a tiny phone, right? I don't want a mini. I don't want a 5.4-inch screen. So 6.1, I would say I'm very happy with that size. I don't find that I want a bigger, you know, uh, I don't want a bigger screen size, partly because I have my tablet, right? I have the iPad. But... Mm -hmm. It's very easy to navigate the phone. It's very easy to hold in one hand. It's very easy to maneuver in one hand. So I think them bringing the size down of their non-pro phone, I think that's a good move. Do they need to copy iPhone at 6.1? And I think Samsung's at 6.12, I think. Could be wrong. But anyways, I like that. The screen size of the 8 Pro staying the same, but them making the phone smaller, I think is also great too. Right, because typically people who want the higher end version with the bigger cameras, more cameras, bigger screen, I'm sure they'd appreciate being able to handle their phone easier in one hand without having to lose screen real estate. Right, folds, I'm not necessarily sold on them yet. I actually, uh, I I was with one of my friends who had the Samsung Fold, the Z Fold Four. Mm-hmm. Or no, yeah, the Z Fold Four, and he loves it. He was before I met with him. He was talking with me about how you know how much better it is. I think he had the the Z Flip three before he was using, and then he upgraded to the Fold. And then I was asking him like, "Hey, are you interested in possibly getting an Ultra phone at all?" But no, like he's he gotten used to the Flip, and then he got used to the Fold, and now he's never going back to a regular phone. Right? He was talking about you know. If I want to watch a video, I can just prop it up this way. If, you know, I'm watching a video and want to have a text conversation, he showed me like the different window and he can do, and I could still have the conversation. So I have the video going here. I can take notes here while the video's like, he is very sold on the phone. And it being the first time I got to, I guess, hold the, see one of the folding phones or see any folding phone in person, it was surprisingly, surprisingly thin, first of all. And even when it was folding up into its its candy bar version, like it didn't seem that it didn't seem that that much more difficult to handle in one hand. Mm-hmm. And my only wish, at least for the Z Fold, is that the folded up version, the candy bar version, was a little bit more uh, more like a traditional phone. I still found that to be a little bit narrow. I know that there's other companies like Xiaomi and Huawei that make different sized uh foldables where it's okay it's closer to a candy bar phone when it's folded up so personally i think you know it's just which form factor you prefer but having the functionality of okay this is just a regular size phone you know quote unquote regular and then you can fold it out to a bigger screen when you want to have bigger a bigger view and experience or when you want to multitask and you want to have enough screen real estate to do all that I'm interested to see where Google takes it. And, you know, all foldable phones are running Android. So I think the fact that Google, the maker of Android, is investing in their own foldable phone, even if I'm not sure if they're going to have the best execution, I think just the fact that they are themselves 
putting out a product means Android is going to be better at supporting foldables. Mm-hmm. I think it'll be easier for those people like the Samsungs, like the like the Xiaomi's, like the Huawei's. I think it'll be easier for them to put out better phones now that Google is focusing on Android for foldables and making it better for foldables. So there's going to be less tinkering and less work that they need to do. So I'm interested to see what Google puts out. I generally like the Pixel phones. I like, I feel like I like most of the, you know, the, the standard, um, I like most of the vanilla Pixel stuff. Mm-hmm. I was a fan of the Nexus phones. I've generally liked the Pixel phones. Um, so yeah, I'm definitely interested to see what they do with their implementation of a foldable, but it's, I'm more looking forward to the foldable landscape after Google gets into it, just because I think it'll be easier for companies to adapt Android to their foldables afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. I could see that as well. I, I, I think, well, I don't know. Hopefully it's not just a situation where Google just steals the work that Samsung's done. And, and just uses that. I have found that stock Android has been particularly slow um, at adapting features. And I've said this many times, unpopular opinion, I know this, but I think pretty much all of the other Android manufacturers have a better version of Android than Google does. Mm. Um, a more feature-rich version of Android. I think One UI is far better. It's funny because I think there was a complaint when the new uh, Galaxy S23, I think right now, line came out about how much you know, storage is being used up and, you know, all these duplicate apps. Uh, I honestly, Samsung's apps are better than Google's apps. So other than messages, other than messages, I think those apps are worth the space that they're taking up. I think the Samsung web browser is fantastic, especially for larger devices. Um, In terms of tab management, it's far better than Chrome. Uh, The the built-in file manager on Samsung phones is completely not comparable to anything else. It's far better than every other file manager that exists. And yeah, I think Samsung makes a fantastic version of Android. I think Xiaomi makes a fantastic version of Android. And I know generally in the North American market, many people don't feel that way, or at least at least in the tech space, uh, tech YouTube space, that isn't a popular opinion. But there's a reason why Samsung phones sell so well and a lot of it has to do with the fact that they pack in a lot of features sometimes that those features get a little bit of controversy like the the moon camera (laughs) but (laughs) other than that i think i think a lot of people really enjoy the fact that their phone is very usable right out of the box and you don't have to download apps from the app store if you have Mm -hmm. a samsung device you may never even need to open the app store um which i think is is great uh not to mention samsung dex right yes dex samsung dex I'm using it right now. So yes, Dex is great. (laughs) Yeah, and um, I do kind of agree with you that Pixel's going in the right direction. I think they struggled a bit early on with the 2 and the Mm 3. And I think they kind of started to stabilize when they started the the 3A and the 4A. I think that's where they really started to to hit their stride. And yeah, I think they're releasing really, really good phones now. And Tensor, uh, which is based off of, uh, you know, a Samsung processor, seems to be doing really well, good as well. So, yeah, I, I think they're definitely they're definitely doing good things. And here's the thing. As much as I would never... When I see Pixel phones, I never think that's going to be my next phone, even in the A-series, uh, mainly because there's a lot of features that I, I personally like that they're missing. And maybe this is a tease, maybe sometime in when there's like a low news week or a slow news week, we can talk about what our favorite uh, or what our dream phone would look like. We can go through like what we would, what we would do there. But... Um, for me, it wouldn't be the Pixel. Uh, 
there's a lot better that they could do. That, despite that, though, I think for most phone buyers who want a great camera, first and foremost, for taking stuff like selfies and pictures and stuff like that, and then also just want a solid phone around that, uh, I think, yeah, Pixel's really up there with, with you know, the base Samsung Galaxy S23 as probably the best choice uh, on the market. And I, ca- I can't fault the fact that there's just more options for, for people who want that now. That's that's awesome in the Android space. Yeah. All right. Our final topic of the day, more AI news. So mainly, Midjourney 5 has come out and it's been called Simply Stunning. Also, GPT-4 is out and it's essentially everywhere. So to start off, I'll talk about Midjourney 5 and then we can branch into the other stuff afterwards uh, and just while i'm introducing it i'll have you look at this link that i sent in the in our chat um, but so Midjourney, for those of you who don't know is a commercial ai image synthesis service so think of stable diffusion think of doll e it's used to produce photorealistic images and it works by you know you will give a description and through that description or through that prompt it will produce an image based off of your description Midjourney version three came out in March 2022, and since they've come out with Midjourney four, and now we're on Midjourney five, and it's uh yeah, people are saying it's incredible. Now, one person, one artist who posts what they produce with Midjourney on their Twitter, um, they said Midjourney five, Midjourney version five feels to me like finally getting glasses after ignoring bad eyesight for a little bit too long. Some notable things about Midjourney version 5 is it has incredibly realistic skin textures, facial features. One thing about these, uh, these image synthesizers is that eyes and faces in general have, for the most part, been good, but sometimes they can get a bit wonky. Eyes aren't necessarily eye-shaped. Also, quite a few of them, you know, when you mention Midjourney 4, Stable Diffusion, Dolly, they don't do hands well. You know, you describe an image and it will produce a human, let's say, and it knows that humans have 10 fingers, but instead of, you know, one hand with five, another hand with five, sometimes they'll put seven fingers on one hand and three fingers on another, or there'll just be one hand in the image and it'll have 10 fingers. So it makes cool looking things, but there's just a little things that are a little bit off and a little bit wonky. I mean, as crazy as it is to say that this is notable, mid-journey five doesn't make wonky eyes. It makes faces that look natural. And it also makes hands with five fingers, which is, you know, we can look back 10 years from now. It's like, yeah, remember when those AI synthesizers couldn't do hands with five fingers? Like, but yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty notable. And so I sent you the link for the article that I got this from. And I guess my question to you is in this article, and I'll post this in the show notes in this article, they have, uh, this, I guess, I don't know, an AI artist, prompt artist. And uh, it shows the same prompt being given to Midjourney 3, Midjourney 4, and Midjourney 5. And you can see from each image, or you can yeah, see from each group of images how the details started out and then how they've progressed to now and like some of the some of these images that I'm seeing on this article from Midjourney Five, if you didn't tell me they they were AI generated, I would think it's a picture. Mm-hmm. I would think it's a picture from a camera that just got uploaded, and 
yeah, I I wouldn't think that this was something that was one like a digital creation, let alone created from an AI prompt. But you know, from this article that I sent you, and you know, maybe stuff that you've heard about Mid Journey Five. What are your thoughts on this level of you know AI synthesized art? Yeah, I mean, so once again, probably unpopular opinion. I think the, the, I would say the term art may be a little. Mm, I don't know. Un, I don't want to say untrue, but just kind of, it doesn't feel like that to me. Uh, it feels like AI generated images, mm-hmm. which, you know, yeah, that's, that's, that's cool. And, and it's funny because with any of this stuff, this stuff is subjective. Like for example, in that article that you sent me, there were three versions of this prompt where it was like this muscular, uh, uh barbarian with weapons beside a CRT. That was the prompt. And obviously the mid journey version three was just a blurry, weird set of images. Not really all that cool. And mid journey five looks much more detailed and, and much more cool in a lot of ways to that. But personally, I don't know. I, I feel like I liked the version of four better, mm-hmm. which is, is just interesting. That's just a personal taste. Right? So I think that, could extend to the idea of art but the the interesting thing with the image generation is for example at the at the bottom of that article there was a list of some images and prompts that were were used to generate and one of them that i found very interesting was uh so a photograph of a clown yeah um and that's just the joker but with an older face and it's funny it looks like it was potentially ripped right out of that joker movie um it's very much lit in that style the suit is very similar the color tone is very similar to the way that that movie was shot um and even the makeup of that version of the joker is similar to this this character and but the person behind the makeup and and the face is is a little bit older but it looks it looks cool it just it it's weird because if this was a person who took this photo you could say, okay, this person was heavily inspired by the Joker movie and they just wanted to take this photo. Mm-hmm. But when it comes from like a generated, uh, you know, model where it's just searching a database of things and says, oh, let me put this with this and that with that. It feels a little bit, I don't even know if, if this is the right word, but soulless in the sense of like, you can see how the sausage is made essentially. And I feel like that's completely based on the fact that it wasn't a person. Because if it was a person, you would say there would be an obvious conversation about, yeah, I was just really loved that movie and I wanted to, you know, emulate that with like a Halloween costume or or something like that or a cosplay and something like that. So there was some kind of emotion to it or reasoning behind it. But when it's just a prompt and it's very similar to something that already exists, it kind of feels weird. It feels like, oh, okay, maybe you just took something that already exists and emulated it. And yeah, I feel like that that idea of why it's artistic and why it's creative kind of dissipates. But despite that, I mean, these things can be very convincing. As a matter of fact, I was doing a thumbnail for a video the other day, and I was just getting a portrait photo um, from a website that has uh, images royalty-free images and stuff like that, like creators will put that stuff there. And I was looking through these portrait photos. I'm like, these people look way too good to be real. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, these are not, real human beings are not this attractive all the time. And there were just so many of them that I'm like, something seems off here. And I think this goes back to the TikTok conversation of like, yeah, this stuff is so convincing 
that it's going to be kind of hard to tell if if people are actually real or it's just some uh generated version ai generated version of a person um and yeah i i think that that part of it is kind of cool and interesting and also kind of weird of like trying to figure out if something is a real photograph or a real image or not a real person at all and i wouldn't be surprised if in the very near future kind of like what we were talking about in the last podcast um with even the the Omarion kind of situation of like, it's going to be impossible to tell if people are real or not. It's just going to be uh, a bunch of AI generated people beside a bunch of real people who look a lot less good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Going into more AI news, GPT has released GPT-4. And with its enhancements, it seems like it's been, it seems like chat GPT and open AI, and it seems like their technology is spreading into even more and more places. Mm -hmm. So GPT-4 is supposed to be more precise, have better accuracy. It can describe images with impressive detail. It's better at editing text. It's also developed, you know, what's called, what they call a sense of humor, uh, better at reasoning, and it's better at taking standardized tests. So it's apparently able to score 1,300 out of 1,600 on the SATs but it's still not good at discussing things in the future. So it's good at talking about past events and it still hallucinates. It still makes stuff up. So I guess in the, in the bit about mid journey, right? You mentioned that it's hard to say that it's art and I'd agree with you. Like it's, it's not really, I, I, I wouldn't consider it as art because I mean, as you said, it, it almost needs to have, that human touch and be inspired by something, but not copying it. Mm -hmm. Right. With that clown image that you talked about, it's yeah, this very much looks like the Joker movie. And it's not even like someone saying, I, I really like this movie. And, you know, I had this subject and, you know, we wanted to try and capture the essence of the Joker in this photograph. Mm-hmm. And then it's, okay, one, is the person behind the camera able to capture that essence? But then is a person in front of the camera, the subject, able to convey that essence also? Yeah. But with this, this AI art, it's, or an art, with this AI, you know, generator, it's, okay, that's the Joker. This is an old man. I'm going to smash the two together. And then that's what you're going to get. Right? So it's hard to say that AI develops art. It's also hard to say that it has a sense of humor because it's like, it's not a real person, right? It can mm -hmm. maybe copy what someone with a sense of humor might say, but it itself doesn't have humor, right? But that being said, GPT-4 is, you know, it's the latest version of GPT and it's getting better at doing things. And with that, AI is going into more and more avenues more apps more websites more services and as you brought up you know in our last podcast i kind of talked about my my boomer mindset and like oh man it's going to be scams everywhere and we're not going to be able to tell what's real and what's a deep fake and there definitely is that concern and i think last episode i especially said that i was worried about that in the future and it definitely seemed like you know it definitely is more negative but to put a positive spin on what AI is, and I think you brought this up in our last episode, right? You know, AI is just a tool yeah. and it's what people choose to use it for. 
So a positive use of AI. An app slash service called Be My Eyes. It's a, it's a service that lets blind and low vision people ask sighted people to describe images for them. So if you're you know in a grocery store aisle and you're looking for something and maybe you were familiar with, okay, this is where they store the baked beans. And then they move things around and now you're not sure exactly where things are. You can use this app on your phone, point the camera of your phone at whatever you're looking at. And then there will be someone on the other end describing, okay, yeah, if you look at the, if you go to the second row, the blue, bluish can is baked beans. Oh no, go over, you know, two spots to your left or maybe one spot up. And that's what you're looking for. So this is an app, a service that's, you know, provided and it relies on real life humans volunteering to do this, which is an amazing service. They are adding an AI virtual volunteer, thanks to the advancements of GPT-4, where the AI will power the help and it will be able to describe what's in the image you're looking at or, you know, whatever you're pointing your camera at. And so, yes, it's, you know, the service is built on volunteers and volunteers are incremental to the service. But let's say you're somewhere where there isn't cell reception. Maybe you're in a subway and you're a little bit lost and you know, hey, I'm underground, I can't use this app because I can't contact someone you know, on the other end, I can't, there's no service, mm-hmm. right? This adds that same functionality without having to rely on someone else. And once again, I'm not saying that this is gonna replace actual volunteers on the other end of this service, this Be My Eye service, but it makes the, it definitely expands the capabilities and it it's definitely a positive thing, right? Yeah. And this is when you think of, okay, people developing tools and developing technology, this is the kind of stuff that they develop it for. They don't develop it so that people can use it for scamming and deep fake. I mean, <laughs> yeah. they they design it to help people out. There's usually a problem that doesn't involve stealing money from people. There's usually a problem that they that they have and it's all right, how can AI or how can we develop something to solve this problem. And I think this this application, Be My Eyes, is a great example of the good uses of AI and how AI can help, you know, with positive things. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the key, right? And I think that's why right now, you know, we've had the conversation in the past where I've mentioned these large language models and GPT, uh, you know, AI art and, and all this stuff it kind of felt like NFTs to me where there was so much hype uh, around it, but not really like a a solid thing for me personally to grasp onto. And that's how I feel about uh, ChatGPT, Bing AI and GPT-4. They're fantastic tools. They look like awesome tools. And one thing that stands out to me as someone who doesn't really understand how they work fully, and that's something I definitely want to tackle at some point of like digging into deep on how these things actually operate um, is that whether it's mid journey five or GPT four, the key seems to be that they're getting better at parsing information. They're getting better at navigating their data sets to give more accurate and more useful information to the people who are requesting it. And for me, the, the conversation around a lot of this stuff isn't very interesting, but what is interesting is 
how can you adapt that model of intelligently going through large data sets, enormous data sets, and actually getting relevant information that will help you is what excites me. Because I think that could be huge for something like the medical field, for example. Uh, there's so much being done with things like uh, gene editing and, and mapping the human genome with, with CRISPR and stuff like that. And how we can use that to treat diseases that are incurable at this moment or are very difficult to cure at this moment. I could imagine using a model like this to parse that information, just that raw data, to actually get something useful from it. To me, is much a use case like that, and that hasn't been used yet, but a use case like that is much more exciting to me than uh, a Bing chatbot saying that it loves me. <laughs> um, so that's the thing. I, I, I think we just haven't gotten to the point now. You know, obviously, GPT-4's APIs are just now getting out to the larger public, but the one thing I have been seeing about the conversation about GPT-4 and these APIs is generally around, and obviously we're in a capitalist culture, this is what's going to happen, but how are these things going to power businesses to make more money? We're seeing that with Google. Google's afraid of losing market share to Bing, so they're focusing on AI to kind of bolster their search and you know their money-making tools, which is great. Companies need to do that. They employ a lot of people. But that's just not interesting to me. What's interesting to me is how do you use this to make everyday life for a random person better or more uh, easier to, to, for like you mentioned, for like someone who's visually impaired. Those things are far more interesting than the conversation that's happening right now. And those conversations aren't really that common. So I'm just at the point now where I'm not super excited about what's going on in this space. But that doesn't mean that I don't think the tools are incredibly cool and I'm just waiting for that really exciting news to pop. And then all of a sudden, I'm all on board for what's happening with these models. Because right now, yeah, they're fun. They're they're interesting. But I don't know. I haven't seen anything personally that is like, yes, I can't wait for that to exist because of this. Um, have you gotten that impression? Like, is there something, whether it's this the Midjourney 5 AI-generated art or GPT and chatbots, uh, like, I don't know, I'm not planning on taking a bar exam anytime soon and having an AI chatbot do it for me. But is there any, you know, use case that you've seen now other than, you know, the one that you just mentioned that are like, yeah, I can't wait for what the future of this tech tech does for us? Uh, there's not really anything that I'm I'm looking forward to like that or that. I, yeah, I'm from this, this Be My Eyes app. I think that's, you know, something that I'm excited to see, mm-hmm. not because I'm looking to use it personally but just you know that's what that's what i feel technology is supposed to be for it's supposed to make our lives easier and better and not just be like oh like as you said this random chatbot this crazy chatbot said it loved me and then it said it was yeah. a demon <laughs> and then it said that you know it, it was sad that it couldn't remember things like those are interesting headlines but i think as you said the more important headlines are okay how are these things making people's lives better yeah. or easier the AI, you know, quote unquote art, it's interesting, but as we said, right, it's not really art. It doesn't have that same creativity feeling to it because it's being generated from, you know, taking, you know, past data sources or past image sources or language sources and, you know, smashing them together. So I'm not really looking forward to the future of that. Mm-hmm. What, uh, like what I guess would be interesting is, 
there are, you know, we talk about uh, as image generator, there are video generators too, right? Yeah. Where you can, let's say, type your script in or type uh, whatever story in and these AI bots will create a video based off of the story that you give them or the script that you get in, give them. That's interesting, but I mean, like, I would still rather see people do that. Mm -hmm. I mean, one way it could get interesting is I'm a big fan of anime, right? One problem I find, and I'm sure a lot of people find with anime, is they have extensive stories in their written copies, in their mangas. And a lot of times the animated TV version is playing catch up to these written versions. Mm -hmm. And so you'll have, let's say, six seasons of a written version, but only three are animated on TV. And then you have to wait for a whole year for the next season to come out. Yeah. And then you watch that and then it's like, all right, now I got to wait a whole nother year for this to come out. What could be interesting is if you feed some sort of image generator or I guess a video generator, a bunch of anime. And it's like, I want you to animate this script in the style of Dragon Ball Z. Or I want you to animate this story in the style of Demon Slayer, Jujutsu Kaisen. And now, as soon as the written version comes out, now you have an animated version to go right along with it. And we don't have to wait for the year-long production. We can just feed it into a video generator and get it possibly day and date when the written version comes out. That being said, right, it's going to lack that human touch and the human flair. And part of what makes these animated series so amazing is like the artists behind it that created these characters and animated these characters and, you know, detailed these characters. If all that gets turned over to an AI generator, those one, those people are out of jobs, then we lose the human art aspect of it. Right. And then how long until we get to the point where it's like, all right, everyone is using Unreal Engine 5, so all our games look the same. Yeah. Or everyone is using this one chatbot, so all of our animes look the same. And we don't have those, you know, those little distinctions that come from having a human animate this and a human, maybe human animates this season. And then the next season we have a different animator, so then it looks a little bit different, right? And we can't talk about the evolution of shows the same way. So... That's, I mean, just me being a greedy consumer of anime, that's one thing that I'd be looking forward to. But then I also don't want to lose the human touch of it. Yeah, uh, right there with you. It, it comes down to, like, the tools, right? If someone is being creative and they have a particular tool set that they're using, if everyone's using the same tool set, whether it's, you know, mid-journey, whether it's GPT, whether it's uh, Unreal Engine 5 or watercolors, the level of variation to that starts to decrease at like exponential levels. And then there becomes less of a conversation around, okay, this person created this anime. Um, there's, there's not really much of a conversation about, well, why did this character look this particular way? Uh, because it was just like, oh yeah, that's how it generated it. Which, you know, that's just kind of, it's not interesting. It's, it's kind of boring in that kind of way. And I think it can make the whole thing like that. Whereas like if you're a painter, and you are only ever allowed to use watercolors. And then you're asked, well, why did you pick this particular visual style? And it's like, well, I had to use watercolors. That was my only option. But if you're like, I could use anything. I could use charcoal. I could use oil-based paints. I could use whatever I want to create this piece of art. There's a lot more conversation that could be had of why did you choose that? And yeah, I, I feel like right now there's not a lot of 
not a lot of conversation around well why did you choose mid-journey well because it was there and it could create it yeah. for me it's like <laughs> okay well all right end of that conversation yeah so i guess is there anything that you're looking forward to for ai to come to or if you had to come up with something if you had to okay you have to put ai into one aspect of your life or one i don't know maybe one source that you consume is there something you could name there isn't right now. And it's not because I, I don't think that there isn't one. I am I am at the point now where I'm waiting. I, I want to see someone show me something that I haven't. Because this is the thing. These models are supposed to be new and and like something like we've never seen before. We've talked about even on this podcast about how much we use the term AI when it's not even really anything all that crazy. It's yeah. just a, a data set and stuff like that. This is much more in the in the vein of what AI would seem to be than we've ever talked about in the past. So it's very new. It's very fresh. And I want to see like someone show me, Hey, this is something that we could have never done before or would have taken us much longer to do. And this is this, we could fit GPT four. We could fit all, any of these models into it perfectly because right now it kind of reminds me a lot of the conversation, either what we've talked about with meta and, and a, uh, VR, where they're like, hey, look how we could use VR to help you work. Well, a lot of the conversation <laughs> is like, hey, look how we can use GPT-4 to read your emails quicker or have you write emails quicker. Like, I don't I don't know if that's sure that's cool, but it it doesn't live up to me to the hype of what this stuff should have been. And that's where I kind of feel on the thing. I hope it's not an NFT level thing mm-hmm. where it's so much hype and we don't ever reach that level in reality, but I think we will. I just don't know what that is yet. And I'm kind of just waiting to see what it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very good point. Like I, yeah, I think I said before, I think there's a lot more functionally behind AI, a lot less hype compared to, compared to NFTs and crypto. Mm -hmm. Right. But not to say that there is no functionality behind crypto or NFTs, but yeah, I think, and especially from stuff like, be my eyes. I think from seeing stuff like that, I think there's definitely more functionally that we'll be able to do with AI. But yeah, I hope it's not just, okay, every company is throwing AI in right now. And then next year it's, okay, yeah, we've we've done our marketing. You know, we got some buzz for our investors. They wanted us to do AI. So now we're doing AI. And then now we're on to the next thing. I hope it's not just that. Yeah. I don't think it's going to be, but yeah, I guess, you know, we'll have to, time will tell if that's what ends up happening, but yeah. And also to everyone out there who's excited about this, reading and writing your emails, just read the emails. <laughs> it saves so much. The amount of time that you think you're saving by getting your email put down into a broke, uh, a bullet point list. Trust me, it would have been easier for you just to read the email and get the context of it. I've been in yeah. so many situations where no one read the email and no one read the instructions. And then they call me five days later and be like, yeah, this still isn't working. Well, it's because you didn't read it. <laughs> So yeah, people just read stuff. <laughs> I mean, what's going to be interesting is if people are always using, if people start using these AI bots to read and write their emails, then it's like someone is talking to an AI bot. It's going to write an email that's going to send to someone else who's going to have an AI bot read that email <laughs> that an AI bot wrote and then chop it down to give to someone else. It's like, yeah, I don't know. It's it's funny to think about. It's It's... AI bots talking to AI bots and humans Essentially, talking to AI yeah. bots. No humans talking to humans. <laughs> yeah. 
That's hilarious. So it's yeah, we're gonna get we could get to the point where it's like, all right, we are just relying on how well these AI bots talk to each other because now we're not even talking to each other. Yeah. Or we're not even like we're not even reading the email that this AI bot took the time to craft for us. So do we even get to the point where it's like they AI bots come up with their own language because they know that they're just talking to each other. And instead of having full out emails, it's like it's sending some AI language where it's like, all right, this is what my human wanted to say to your human. All right, here you go. I'll try and put that in a way that my human understands. A GPT form of a stenographer, just super short form. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, hey, I wrote an email and it ended up being like four characters that another that you need another AI bot to read. Honestly, to that could be a great yeah, that could be a great marketing feature of like, hey, if you're GPT and you're Bing and you want to make sure that your system doesn't work well with anyone else's system so that everyone is forced to use your system only, yeah. it'd be like, yeah, instead of translating this into something that a human can read, let's translate it to our own <laughs> our own internal language so that they need to use Bing chatbot in order to translate it back to English. Yeah. Oh, man. Uh, yeah, I guess take it easy, everyone in podcast land. Catch you in the next episode.